Section 23 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain Volume 3 Chapter 21 Letters 1881 to Howells and others, assisting a young sculptor. Literary Plans With all of Mark Twain's admiration for Grant, he had opposed him as a third-term president and approved of the nomination of Garfield. He had made speeches for Garfield during the campaign just ended and had been otherwise active in his support. Upon Garfield's election, however, he felt himself entitled to no special favor, and the single request which he preferred at length could hardly be classed as personal, though made for a personal friend. To President-elect James A. Garfield in Washington, Hartford, January 12, 81. General Garfield, dear sir, several times since your election, Persons wanting office have asked me to use my influence with you in their behalf. To word it in that way was such a pleasant compliment to me that I never complied. I could not, without exposing the fact that I hadn't any influence with you, and that was a thing I had no mind to do. It seems to me that it is better to have a good man's flattering estimate of my influence, and to keep it, than to fool it away with trying to get him in office. But when my brother, on my wife's side, Mr. Charles J. Langdon, late of the Chicago Convention, desires me to speak a word for Mr. Fred Douglas, I am not asked to use my influence. Consequently, I am not risking anything. So, I am writing this as a simple citizen. I am not drawn on my fund of influence at all. A simple citizen may express a desire with all propriety in the matter of a recommendation to office, and so I beg permission to hope that you will retain Mr. Douglas in his present office of Marshal of the District of Columbia, if such a course will not clash with your own preferences or with the expediences and interest of your administration. I offer this petition with peculiar pleasure and strong desire because I so honor this man's high and blemishless character and so admire his brave, long crusade for the liberties and elevation of his race. He is a personal friend of mine, but that is nothing to the point. His history would move me to say these things without that, and I feel them too. With great respect, I am, General, yours truly, S. L. Clemens. Clemens would go out of his way any time to grant favor to the colored race. His childhood associations were partly accountable for this, but he also felt that the white man owed the Negro a debt for generations of enforced bondage. He would lecture any time in a colored church, when he would as likely as not refuse point-blank to speak for a white congregation. Once, in Elmira, he received a request, poorly and none too politely phrased, to speak for one of the churches. 
he was annoyed and about to send a brief refusal when mrs clemens who was present said i think i know that church and if so this preacher is a colored man he does not know how to write a polished letter how should he her husband's manner changed so suddenly that she added i will give you a motto and it will be useful to you if you will adopt it consider every man colored until he has proved white to w d howells in boston hartford february twenty seventh eighteen eighty one my dear howells i go to west point with twitchell tomorrow but shall be back tuesday or wednesday and then just as soon thereafter as you and mrs howells and winnie can come you will find us ready and most glad to see you and the longer you can stay the gladder we shall be i'm not going to have a thing to do but you shall work if you want to on the evening of march tenth i'm going to read to the colored folk in the african church here no whites admitted except such as i bring with me and a choir of colored folk will sing jubilee songs i count on a good time and shall hope to have you folks there and living i read in twitchell's chapel friday night and had a most rattling high time but the thing that went best of all was uncle remus's tar baby i mean to try that on my dusky audience they've all heard that tale from childhood at least the older members have i arrived home in time to make a most noble blunder invited charlie warner here in livy's name to dinner with the gerhardts and told him livy had invited his wife by letter and by word of mouth also i don't know where i got these impressions but i came home feeling as one does who realizes that he has done a neat thing for once and left no flaws or loopholes well livy said she had never told me to invite charlie and she hadn't dreamed of inviting susie and moreover there wasn't any dinner but just one lean duck but susie warner's intuitions were correct so she choked off charlie and stayed home herself we waited dinner an hour and you ought to have seen that duck when he was done drying in the oven mark clemens and his wife were always privately assisting worthy and ambitious young people along the way of achievement young actors were helped through dramatic schools young men and women were assisted through college and to travel abroad among others clemens paid the way of two colored students one through a southern institution and another through the yale law school the mention of the name of gerhardt in the preceding letter introduces the most important or at least the most extensive of these benefactions the following letter gives the beginning of the story to w d howells in boston private and confidential hartford february twenty one eighteen eighty one my dear howells well here is our romance it happened in this way one morning a month ago no three weeks livy and clara spaulding and i were at breakfast at ten a m and i was in an irritable mood for the barber was upstairs waiting and his hot water getting cold when the colored george returned from answering the bell and said 
there's a lady in the drawing room wants to see you a book agent says i with heat i won't see her i will die in my tracks first then i got up with a soul full of rage and went in there and bent scowling over that person and began a succession of rude and rasper questions and without even offering to sit down not even the defendant's youth and beauty and seeming timidity were able to modify my savagery for a time and meantime question and answer were going on she had risen to her feet with the first question and there she stood with her pretty face bent floorward whilst i inquired but always with her honest eyes looking me in the face when it came her turn to answer and this was her tale and her plea diffidently stated but straightforwardly and bravely and most winningly simply and earnestly i put it in my own fashion for i do not remember her words mr carl gerhardt who works in pratt and whitney's machine shops has made a statue in clay and would i be so kind as to come and look at it and tell him if there is any promise in it he has none to go to and he would be so glad oh dear me i said i don't know anything about art there's nothing i could tell him but she went on just as earnestly and as simply as before with her plea and so she did after repeated rebuffs and dull as i am even i began by and by to admire this brave and gentle persistence and to perceive how her heart of hearts was in this thing and how she couldn't give it up but must carry her point so at last i wavered and promised in general terms that i would come down the first day that fell idle and as i conducted her to the door i tamed more and more and said i would come during the very next week we shall be so glad but but would you please come early in the week the statue is just finished and we are so anxious and and we did hope you could come this week and well i came down another peg and said i would come monday as sure as death and before i got to the dining room remorse was doing its work and i was saying to myself damnation how can a man be such a hound why didn't i go with her now yes and how mean i should have felt if i had known that out of her poverty she had hired a hack and brought it along to convey me but luckily for what was left of my peace of mind i didn't know that well it appears that from here she went to charlie warner's there was a better light there and the eloquence of her face had a better chance to do its office warner fought as i had done and he was in the midst of an article and very busy but no matter she won him completely he laid aside his manuscript and said come let us go and see your father's statue that is is he your father no he is my husband so this child was married you see this was a saturday next day warner came to dinner and said go go to ma don't fail he was in love with the girl and with her husband too and said he believed there was merit in the statue pretty crude work maybe but merit in it patrick and i hunted up the place next day the girl saw us driving up and flew down the stairs and received me 
her quarters were the second story of a little wooden house another family on the ground floor the husband was at the machine shop the wife kept no servant she was there alone she had a little parlor with a chair or two and a sofa and the artist husband's hand was visible in a couple of plaster busts one of the wife and another of a neighbor's child visible also in a couple of watercolors of flowers and birds an ambitious unfinished portrait of his wife in oils some paint decorations on the pine mantel and an excellent human ear done in some plastic material at sixteen then we went into the kitchen and the girl flew around with enthusiasm and snatched rag after rag from a tall something in the corner and presently there stood the clay statue life-size a graceful girlish creature nude to the waist and holding up a single garment with one hand the expression attempted being a modified scare she was interrupted when about to enter the bath then this young wife posed herself alongside the image and so remained a thing i didn't understand but presently i did then i said oh it's you yes she said i was the model he has no model but me i have stood for this many and many an hour and you can't think how it does tire one but i don't mind it he works all day at the shop and then nights and sundays he works on his stature as long as i can keep up she got a big chisel to use as a lever and between us we managed to twist the pedestal round and round so as to afford a view of the stature from all points well sir it was perfectly charming this girl's innocence and purity exhibiting her naked self as it were to a stranger and alone and never once dreaming that there was the slightest indelicacy about the matter and so there wasn't but it will be many a long day before i run across another woman who can do the like and show no trace of self-consciousness well then we sat down and i took a smoke and she told me all about her people in massachusetts her father is a physician and it is an old and respectable family i am able to believe anything she says and she told me how carl is twenty-six years old and how he has had passionate longings all his life toward art but has always been poor and obliged to struggle for his daily bread and how he felt sure that if he could only have one or two lessons in lessons hasn't he had any lessons no he had never had a lesson and presently it was dinner time and carl arrived a slender young fellow with a marvellous head and a noble eye and he was as simple and natural and as beautiful in spirit as his wife was but she had to do the talking mainly there was too much thought behind his cavernous eyes for glib speech i went home enchanted told livy and clara spaulding all about the paradise down yonder where those two enthusiasts are happy with a yearly expense of three hundred and fifty dollars livy and clara went there next day and came away enchanted a few nights later the gerhardts kept their promise and came here for the evening it was billiard night and i had company and so was not down but livy and clara became more charmed with these children than ever warner and i planned to get somebody to criticize the stature whose judgment would be worth something so i laid for champney 
and after two failures I captured him and took him around, and he said, This statue is full of faults, but it has merits enough in it to make up for them. Whereat the young wife danced around as delighted as a child. When we came away, Champney said, I did not want to say too much there, but the truth is, it seems to me an extraordinary performance for an untrained hand. You ask if there is promise enough there to justify the Hartford folk in going to an expense of training this young man. I should say yes, decidedly. But still, to make everything safe, you had better get the judgment of a sculptor. Warner was in New York. I wrote him, and he said he would fetch up Ward, which he did. Yesterday they went to the Gerhardt's and spent two hours, and Ward came away bewitched with those people and marveling at the winning innocence of the young wife, who dropped naturally into model attitude beside the statue, which is stark naked from head to heel now. Gerhardt had removed the drapery, fearing Ward would think he was afraid to try legs and hips, just as she has always done before. Livy and I had two long talks with Ward yesterday evening. He spoke strongly. He said if any stranger had told me that this apprentice did not model that thing from plaster casts, I would not have believed it. He said it is full of crudities, but it is full of genius, too. It is such a stature as the man of average talent would achieve after two years' training in the schools, and the boldness of the fellow in going straight to nature he is an apprentice. His work shows that, all over. But the stuff is in him, sure. Hartford must send him to Paris, two years. Then, if the promise holds good, keep him there, three more, and warn him to study, study, work, work, and keep his name out of the papers, and neither ask for orders nor accept them when offered. Well, you see, that's all we wanted. After Ward was gone, Livy came out with the thing that was in her mind. She said, Go privately and start the Gerhardts off to Paris, and say nothing about it to anyone else. So I tramped down this morning in the snowstorm, and there was a stirring time. They will sail a week or ten days from now. As I was starting out at the front door, with Gerhardt beside me and the young wife dancing and jubilating behind, this latter cried out impulsively, Tell Mrs. Clemens I want to hug her. I want to hug you both. I gave them my old French book, and they were going to tackle the language straight off. Now, this letter is a secret. Keep it quiet. I don't think Livy would mind my telling you these things, but then she might, you know, for she is a queer girl. Yours ever, Mark. Champney was J. Wells Champney, a portrait painter of distinction. Ward was the sculptor J. Q. A. Ward. The Gerhardts were presently off to Paris, well provided with means to make their dreams reality. In due time the letters will report them again. The Uncle Remus tales of Joel Chandler Harris gave Mark Twain great pleasure. He frequently read them aloud, not only at home, but in public. Finally, he wrote Harris, expressing his warm appreciation and mentioning one of the Negro stories of his own childhood, The Golden Arm, which he urged Harris to look up and add to his collection. 
"'You have pinned a proud feather in Uncle Remus's cap,' replied Harris. "'I do not know what higher honor he could have than to appear before the Hartford public, arm in arm, with Mark Twain.' He disclaimed any originality for the stories, adding, "'I understand that my relations toward Uncle Remus are similar to those that exist between an almanac-maker and the calendar.' He had not heard the Golden Arm story, and asked for the outlines, also for some publishing advice, out of Mark Twain's long experience. To Joel Chandler Harris, in Atlanta, Elmira, New York, August 10. My dear Mr. Harris, you can argue yourself into the delusion that the principle of life is in the stores themselves, and not in the setting but you will save labor by stopping with that solitary convert, for he is the only intelligent one you will bag. In reality, the stories are only alligator pears. One merely eats them for the sake of the salad dressing. Uncle Remus is most deftly drawn, and is a lovable and delightful creation. He and the little boy, and their relations with each other, are high and fine literature and worthy to live, for their own sakes, and certainly the stories are not to be credited with them. But enough of this. I seem to be proven to the man that made the multiplication table that twice one are two. I have been thinking, yesterday and today, plenty a chance to think, as I am abed with lumbago at our little summering farm among the solitudes of the mountain-tops and I have concluded that I can answer one of your questions with full confidence. Thus, make it a subscription book. Mighty few books that come strictly under the head of literature will sell by subscription. But if Uncle Remus won't, the gift of prophecy has departed out of me. When a book will sell by subscription, it will sell two or three times as many copies as it would in the trade, and the profit is bulkier because the retail price is greater. You didn't ask me for a subscription publisher. If you had, I should have recommended Osgood to you. He inaugurates his subscription department with my new book in the fall. Now, the doctor has been here and tried to interrupt my yawn about the golden arm, but I've got through anyway. Of course, I tell it in the Negro dialect. That is necessary but I have not written it so, for I can't spell it in your matchless way. It is marvelous the way you and Cable spell the Negro and Creole dialects. Two grand features are lost in print. The weird wailing, the rising and falling cadences of the wind, so easily mimicked with one's mouth, and the impressive pauses and eloquent silences and subdued utterances toward the end of the yarn, which chain the attention of the children hand and foot, and they sit with parted lips and breathless to be wrenched limb from limb with the sudden and appalling, You got it. Old Uncle Daniel, a slave of my uncle's, age sixty, used to tell us children yawns every night by the kitchen fire, no other light and the last yawn demanded, every night, was this one. By this time there was but a ghastly blaze or two flickering about the back log. We would huddle close about the old man, and begin to shudder with the first familiar words, and under the spell of his impressive delivery 
we always fell a prey to that climax at the end when the rigid black shape in the twilight sprang at us with a shout when you come to glance at the tale you will recollect it it is as common and familiar as the tar baby work up the atmosphere with your customary skill and it will go in print lumbago seems to make a body garrulous but you'll forgive it truly yours s l clemens the golden arm story was one that clemens often used in his public readings and was very effective as he gave it in his sketch how to tell a story it appears about as he used to tell it harris receiving the outlines of the old missouri tale presently announced that he had dug up its georgia relative an interesting variant as we gather from mark twain's reply to joel chandler harris in atlanta hartford eighty one my dear mr harris i was very sure you would run across that story somewhere and am glad you have a drummond light no i mean a brush light is thrown upon the negro estimate of values by his willingness to risk his soul and his mighty peace forever for the sake of a silver sevenpence and this form of the story seems rather nearer the true field-hand standard than that achieved by my florida missouri negroes with their sumptuous arm of solid gold i judge you haven't received my new book yet however you will in a day or two meantime you must not take it ill if i drop osgood a hint about your proposed story of slave life when you come north i wish you would drop me a line and then follow it in person and give me a day or two at our house in hartford if you will i will snatch osgood down from boston and you won't have to go there at all unless you want to please to bear this strictly in mind and don't forget it sincerely yours s l clemens charles warren stoddard to whom the next letter is written was one of the old california literary crowd a graceful writer of verse and prose never quite arriving at the success believed by his friends to be his due he was a gentle irresponsible soul well loved by all who knew him and always by one or another provided against want the reader may remember that during mark twain's great lecture engagement in london winter of eighteen seventy three seventy four stoddard lived with him acting as his secretary at a later period in his life he lived for several years with the great telephone magnate theodore n vale at the time of this letter stoddard had decided that in the warm light and comfort of the sandwich islands he could survive on his literary earnings to charles warren stoddard in the sandwich islands hartford october twenty sixth eighty one my dear charlie now what have i ever done to you that you should not only slide off to heaven before you have earned a right to go but must add the gratuitous villainy of informing me of it the house is full of carpenters and decorators whereas what we really need here is an incendiary if the house would only burn down we would pack up the cubs and fly to the isles of the blessed and shut ourselves up in the healing solitudes of the crater of haleakala and get a good rest for the mails do not intrude there nor yet the telephone and the telegraph and after resting 
we would come down the mountain apiece and board with a godly breech-clouded native and eat poi and dirt and give thanks to whom all thanks belong for these privileges and never housekeep any more i think my wife would be twice as strong as she is but for this wearing and wearying slavery of housekeeping however she thinks she must submit to it for the sake of the children whereas i have always had a tenderness for parents too so for her sake and mine i sigh for the incendiary when the evening comes and the gas is lit and the wear and tear of life ceases we want to keep house always but next morning we wish once more that we were free and irresponsible boarders work one can't you know to any purpose i don't really get anything done worth speaking of except during the three or four months that we are away in the summer i wish the summer was seven years long i keep three or four books on the stocks all the time but i seldom add a satisfactory chapter to one of them at home yes and it is all because my time is taken up with answering the letters of strangers it can't be done through a shorthand amanuensis i've tried that it wouldn't work i couldn't learn to dictate what does possess strangers to write so many letters i never could find that out however i suppose i did it myself when i was a stranger but i will never do it again maybe you think i am not happy the very thing that gravels me is that i am i don't want to be happy when i can't work i am resolved that hereafter i won't be what i have always longed for was the privilege of living forever away up on one of those mountains in the sandwich islands overlooking the sea yours ever mark that magazine article of yours was mighty good up to your very best i think i enclose a book review written by howells to w d howells in boston hartford october twenty sixth eighty one my dear howells i am delighted with your review and so is mrs clemens what you have said there will convince anybody that reads it a body cannot help being convinced by it that is the kind of a review to have the doubtful man even the prejudiced man is persuaded and succumbs what a queer blunder that was about the baronet i can't quite see how i ever made it there was an opulent abundance of things i didn't know and consequently no need to trench upon the vest pocket full of things i did know to get material for a blunder charlie warren stoddard has gone to the sandwich islands permanently lucky devil it is the only supremely delightful place on earth it does seem that the more advantage a body doesn't earn here the more of them god throws at his head this fellow's postal card has set the vision of those gracious islands before my mind again with not a leaf withered nor a rainbow vanished nor a sun flash missing from the waves and now it will be months i reckon before i can drive it away again it is beautiful company but it makes one restless and dissatisfied with love and thanks yours ever mark the review mentioned in this letter was of the prince and the pauper what the queer blunder about the baronet was the present writer confesses he does not know 
but perhaps a careful reader could find it at least in the early edition very likely it was corrected without loss of time clemens now and then found it necessary to pay a visit to canada in the effort to protect his copyright he usually had a grand time on these trips being lavishly entertained by the canadian literary fraternity in november eighteen eighty one he made one of these journeys in the interest of the prince and the pauper this time with osgood who was now his publisher in letters written home we get a hint of his diversions the monsieur frachet mentioned was a canadian poet of considerable distinction clara was miss clara spaulding of elmira who had accompanied mr and mrs clemens to europe in eighteen seventy three and again in eighteen seventy eight later she became mrs john b statchfield of new york city her name has already appeared in these letters many times to mrs clemens in hartford montreal november twenty eighth eighty one livy darling you and clara ought to have been at breakfast in the great dining-room this morning english female faces distinctive english costumes strange and marvellous english gates and yet such honest honourable clean-souled countenances just as these english women almost always have you know right away but they've come to take me to the top of mount royal it being a cold dry sunny magnificent day going in a sleigh yours lovingly samuel to mrs clemens in hartford montreal sunday november twenty seventh eighteen eighty one livy dear a mouse kept me awake last night till three or four o'clock so i am lying abed this morning i would not give sixpence to be out yonder in the storm although it is only snow the above paragraph is written in the form of a rebus illustrated with various sketches there that's for the children was not sure that they could read writing especially jean who is strangely ignorant in some things i can not only look out upon the beautiful snowstorm past the vigorous blaze of my fire and upon the snow-veiled buildings which i have sketched and upon the churchward drifting umbrellas and upon the buffalo-clad cabmen stamping their feet and thrashing their arms on the corner yonder but i also look out upon the spot where the first white men stood in the neighborhood of four hundred years ago admiring the mighty stretch of leafy solitudes and being admired and marveled at by an eager multitude of naked savages the discoverer of this region and namer of it jacques cartier has a square named for him in the city i wish you were here you would enjoy your birthday i think i hoped for a letter and thought i had one when the mail was handed in a minute ago but it was only that note from sylvester baxter you must ride do you hear or i will be remiss myself give my love and a kiss to the children and ask them to give you my love and a kiss from samuel to mrs clemens in hartford quebec sunday eighty one livy darling i received a letter from monsieur frechet this morning in which certain citizens of montreal tendered me a public dinner next thursday and by osgood's advice i accepted it 
I would have accepted anyway, and very cheerfully, but for the delay of two days, for I was proposing to go to Boston Tuesday and home Wednesday, whereas now I go to Boston Friday and home Saturday. I have to go by Boston on account of business. We drove about the steep hills and narrow, crooked streets of this old town during three hours yesterday in a sleigh, in a driving snowstorm. The people here don't mind snow. They were all out, plodding around on their affairs, especially the children, who were wallowing around everywhere, like snow images, and having a mighty good time. I wish I could describe the winter costume of the young girls, but I can't. It is grave and simple, but graceful and pretty. The top of it is a brimless fur cap. Maybe it is the costume that makes pretty girls seem so monotonously plenty here. It was a kind of relief to strike a homely face occasionally. You descend into some of the streets by long, deep stairways, and in the strong moonlight last night these were very picturesque. I did wish you were here to see these things. You couldn't by any possibility sleep in these beds, though, or enjoy the food. Good night, sweetheart, and give my respects to the cubs. Samuel it had been hoped that w d howells would join the canadian excursion but howells was not very well that autumn he wrote that he had been in bed five weeks most of the time recovering so you see how bad i must have been to begin with but now i am out of any first-class pain i have a good appetite and i am as abusive and peremptory as jeteau clemens returning to hartford wrote him a letter that explains itself. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, December 16, 81. My dear Howells, it was a sharp disappointment, your inability to connect on the Canadian raid. What a gaudy good time we should have had. Disappointed again when I got back to Boston, for I was promising myself half an hour's look at you in Belmont. But your note to Osgood showed that that could not be allowed out yet. The Atlantic arrived an hour ago, and your faultless and delicious police report brought that blamed Joe Twitchell powerfully before me. There's a man who can tell such things himself, by word of mouth, and has as sure an eye for detecting a thing that is before his eyes as any man in the world, perhaps. Then why in the nation doesn't he report himself with a pen? One of those drenching days last week, he slopped downtown with his cubs and visited a poor little beggarly shed where were a dwarf, a fat woman, and a giant of honest eight feet on exhibition behind tawdry show canvases, but with nobody to exhibit too. The giant had a broom and was cleaning up and fixing around diligently. Joe conceived the idea of getting some talk out of him. Now that never would have occurred to me. So he dropped in under the man's elbow, dogged him patiently around, prodding him with questions and getting irritated snarls in return which would have finished me early. But at last one of Joe's random shafts drove the center of that giant's sympathies somehow and fetched him. The fountains of his great deep were broken up, and it rained a flood of personal history that was unspeakably entertaining. 
among other things it turned out that he had been a turkish native colonel and had fought all through the crimean war and so for the first time joe got a picture of the charge of the six hundred that made him see the living spectacle the flash of flag and tongue flame the rolling smoke and hear the booming of the guns and for the first time also he heard the reasons for that wild charge delivered from the mouth of a master and realized that nobody had blundered but that a cold logical military brain had perceived this one and sole way to win an already lost battle and so gave the command and did achieve the victory and mind you joe was able to come up here days afterwards and reproduce that giant's picturesque and admirable history but dunham he can't write it which is all wrong and not as it should be and he has gone and raked up the manuscript autobiography written in eighteen forty eight of mrs phoebe brown author of i love to steal a while away who educated young wing in her family when he was a little boy and i came near not to get into bed at all last night on account of the lurid fascinations of it why in the nation it has never got into print i can't understand but by jings the postman will be here in a minute so congratulations upon your mending health and gratitude that it is mending and love to y'all yours ever mark don't answer i spare the sick end of section twenty three recording by james k white chula vista